1: This morning we come to the end of a four-part series on God's design for humanity, exemplified by the woman's subordination to man as evidenced by a localized ancient custom of head coverings. Localized and ancient meaning it's not normative, it's not required or commanded for us today. But the principle that he has been teaching us, the principles that Paul has been teaching us, still apply. This was a cultural norm, but it held more significance for the Christian woman, especially when she was ministering in public. Although head coverings are not required today, the principle, again, behind the symbolism is not just required, it is commanded. It is the foundation of the family, the church, the marriage, society. Last week, We saw this through the order and purpose of the creation of the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve. Not only was Adam created first as the glory and image of God, Eve, we saw, was created for Adam. This reality has nothing to do with equality, which frankly is a separate issue addressed in the Bible, but not an issue found here. But it does have to do with God's design. This design carries over to the Christian church and the Christian families that exist today and until the Lord returns. As a general principle, it is true even for those who are unmarried, as is the teaching from our passage this morning. As I mentioned, today we close out the topic with some closing thoughts from the Apostle Paul, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 11 through 16, and this closes off his discourse, his explanation of head coverings, and of course, the bigger principle of men's and women's roles. 11 through 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. As we close out this section this morning, I want to give you three harmonizing truths about men and women. Three harmonizing truths about men and women to round out, to fill in some gaps regarding the biblical teaching of female subordination. Our first harmonizing truth this morning is mutual dependence, mutual dependence. And we'll see this in verses 11 and 12. Let me read those for you again. He says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. He's starting to give some qualifications, if you will, but not qualifications in the sense that sometimes we do it to kind of backpedal or excuse what we've said or even to... Change what we've said before, qualifications to help them have a fuller understanding of what he's already taught and holds firmly upon. And when you talk about the issue of subordination of women, biblical subordination or cultural subordination or whatever it may be, one of the biggest issues raised. By some people in the church, but by many people outside of the church, is the issue of equality. And I've talked a lot about the equality of men and women and how neither subordination nor submission means inequality. Again, as I've repeated many times, we see this within the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all co-equal. They are all God. They are to be worshipped. Yet in their roles, they they submit, subordinate to each other. Jesus follows the Father's will. The Holy Spirit fathers the will of the Son and the Father. And yet they are all equal. See, this issue of inequality is brought in by people who don't understand the Scriptures. The issue of inequality is brought on by people who study the Bible just to find inequality in it and conveniently ignore or misinterpret the clear teaching of Scripture in that we are all equal. I address this not just because of the biblical teaching of equality of all people, but to counter those very thoughts that you have may, may have been taught, that you have heard, that maybe was ingrained in you in school or society, or even by your own parents. Definitely, you see it in the news these days. And understand, when we talk about equality, or when we talk about subordination, we are not addressing the extra biblical social or political issues that society addresses. In no way does the submission of women mean they shouldn't get paid the same for the same job. That's not even in here. That's a, that's a completely separate issue. It is so uh, distinct biblically from the issue that we've talking we're talking about, it's as if I say the Bible says that women are to submit to men, and someone says, "Yeah, but we really need to bring back stick, stick shifts in cars." It seems related, and it's made related in the minds of secular society, but it's unrelated. We are not saying these things. We are not saying that women should be treated like doormats, should be treated like trash, should be treated like slaves. In fact, if you go back to a passage we saw a couple weeks ago where Paul says, if you're not going to show your visible head covering of submission to your husband, then you might as well shave your head like a slave. It's actually the opposite. It is the glory of woman and her role that shows that indeed she is not the slave of man. And we'll see that more today. But... Talking about the proper issues and the proper understanding of men and women in God's eyes and Scripture, equality is an important issue, though often misguided and misunderstood. But I have something that's more important, more powerful, and brings more dignity to both men and women than the issue or pursuit of equality, and that is dependence dependence. Oh, we Americans don't like that word because we're independent, not just as a, as a specific gender, but as individuals we want to be independent. We, we think success is having to rely on nobody and not need anyone, but the opposite is true. This is why we exist. This is why God created the church, He understood that we would need one another to serve Him, to serve each other, that no one Christian is filled with all of the gifts, spiritual gifts. We need help. We need one another. And when it comes to the topic at hand, men need women and women need men. There is a mutual dependence there. It is a general principle and not, not necessarily specifically speaking about the need for every person to be married. That's not what this is talking about here. It is a general principle. It's not saying that singles have to get married or they can't survive. That's not what we're saying. What Paul is saying is that in God's creative order and sovereign plan for humanity and society, there is an interdependence between the genders neither gender is independent of the other. In other words, each sex is incomplete without the opposite sex. Let's pick this apart. He begins with the word, however. It shows he's concluding the discussion on this topic and in so doing is about to emphasize something that should not be missed. It is essential. Don't overlook this. And before we get into the details of this dependence in verse 12, I want to park it briefly on the phrase, in the Lord. Now, this principle is not just for Christians, but we are reminded that this is a structure established by God. On the flip side, the distinctions between genders is not removed at salvation because we are all equal in Christ. And what Paul writes elsewhere that there is no distinction in Christ, or that there is neither male nor female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.28, he's not removing physical and functional differences in those passages. He's emphasizing that there is no partiality in Christ in regard to salvation and the makeup of the church. If anything, being in Christ is makes the biological and practical differences between male and female more explicit. Not only because we understand that this is how God wants it, but because we worship and obey the God who wants it this way. And also because we understand the outworking of mutuality and reciprocity in society, in the church, and in the home. We understand that this is how things work. This is how structures hold together. And we see very clearly, along with the whole list of other sins in our society going ever increasingly popular and depraved, how right under their noses, their own societies and families are falling apart because they are trying to be independent. Independent. Because they are trying to change, rename, redefine, surgically remove biological genders. And things are falling apart. Things are falling apart. And we hold true to the design of the great designer. It's not a matter of arrogance. It's a matter of humility, actually, that we have been given the Holy Spirit. The scales have fallen off of our eyes, and so we are able to comprehend and understand the Scriptures. It's as if a master architect put together a building, not just to look nice, not just to please the future inhabitants of that building, but so that building does not crumble and kill everyone. That is the design of God. And what if some guy, not even a construction worker, some intern whose job was to mix the concrete, gets a hold of the blueprints and says, you know what would work better? They have never met the designer. They can't even interpret the design. They just want what they want. That is what society in their unbelieving minds is doing. We can't fault them. They are depraved. They know no better than what they are doing. They don't have Christ to worship. They don't have God to worship. They have nothing better in their lives than themselves and their causes and their feelings. And so what else would they pursue with full force? all their time, all their money, some of them even their lives. But what they are doing is they are ditching the great design of the designer and destabilizing the whole structure. But we as believers, we know better. We are to strive for better. We are sinners. We stumble. We fall. But to the best of our abilities, we need to do it right. And then we have to encourage others to do it right. And then we have to train our children to do it right. And if you don't have children, train the other children in the church to do it right. Then share the gospel so other people can learn how to do it right. In every way, man and woman complement each other like two puzzle pieces that fit together. You ever had a puzzle that's missing a couple pieces? still complete you can kind of figure out or it's not complete it's it's there you can kind of figure out what the picture is but it bugs you it's incomplete now imagine throwing that thing off the table and then just putting one piece of the puzzle here and there as long as none of them are touching each other on the table and say isn't that beautiful you say, I think you've missed the whole point of what a puzzle is. And that's what we want to do in society today. We're all here, but we're independent. Let me be my own little picture my way. Yeah, together I get it. Together we, we form a picture of men and women needing each other, different roles, leading and submitting. But here, over here, I'm just one leaf and a little blue sky, and that's who I'm going to be. But I need you close by so I can argue and fight and use you and step on your shoulders to do what I want to do. And then get everyone to come alongside me. So then we can even threaten politicians with their jobs. You don't do this, we don't vote for you. And then it becomes a political issue. And then it's on the ballot. And then employers and business owners are pressured to put certain signs in their windows and be accepting of certain people and make sure they hire a number of these type of people. And doctors can't be doctors unless they say, yes, I'm willing to kill babies and reassign someone's gender before they're even a teenager. And the structure crumbles. And we as believers, we look at the blueprint and we look at what's going on and we say, You guys are partying in that building, but I wouldn't get within a mile of that. But we need to go in. We need to go in and we need to say, Stop. You don't understand. Do you see what you're doing? Not for the sake of society not for the sake of their kids, that they're pressuring to be another gender, that's secondary, before the glory of God to uphold the way things are meant to be. It is possible. There is hope. God is alive. God is here. He has given us the power of the gospel, the power of righteousness, the power of repentance, the power of proclamation. He'll do the saving. He'll do the work. He'll do the fixing. But we need to present. We need to tell people. And we see this from the moment of creation. Right in Adam and Eve and every day since throughout human history, some of which is recorded for us in the Old Testament, men and woman have worked together interdependently for God's glory. And now to verse 12. This is not everything, but it is foundational woman needs man because as we saw last week she was created from man by god through the agency of man she would not exist were it not for man and that infamous rib man needs woman because ever since that infamous rib all men have come out of a woman's womb Except for the original man, Adam, all men have come through the agency or the medium of a woman, namely Eve and all of her daughters, her progeny. Put these two together, and you see clearly that neither man nor woman has an advantage, no matter what society, no matter what the church, no matter what that individual may claim. Neither has an advantage. Like we saw last week, you can't argue with nature. Different roles? Absolutely. Different importance? Absolutely not. And speaking of God-given and biological roles, we are given a stark reminder here of the dignity of motherhood. Additionally, just as the man is to be the primary leader and teacher of the home and the church, we also know that nobody has as much influence on an individual man than his woman. And so, man has his role and woman has hers. Mutual dependence, they need one another. However, here's man's need of woman, here's woman's need of man. However, both need God. Paul quickly reminds us of this fact at the end of verse 12. We may like to quibble about who's better and who's best, who does this and who does that, but when all is said and done, God is best and God does all. We worship Him, we submit to Him, we follow His plan and original order of things man, woman, this, that, who's better, who's best. He is the great equalizer and ends every debate you both need me he says and so there's a mutual dependence not just man with woman and woman with man but both of them with god and having established this all important truth paul now closes off the issue of head coverings from a fact of nature and we bring this this brings us to our second harmonizing truth about men and women the manifest dignity, the manifest or visible dignity. Verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves, he says to the Corinthians. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. Paul begins by appealing to logic and common sense in the light of nature. He says, judge for yourselves. We've seen him do something similar already in 1 Corinthians. A modern equivalent would be like, think about it. Or, I think you'll agree that. And what he's asking the Corinthians to judge is what is, quote, proper. He uses the word proper. That speaks of what is fitting, what is instinctive, what is seemly, what is proper. The answer he expects from this rhetorical question is, of course not. Of course that's not proper. In other words, he has made his point so clearly, and even if he didn't, even if he didn't, common sense would tell you that the answer is clear. It is obvious. Obvious because of what he has taught, but obvious from nature and cultural norms. What's the question then? It returns to the issue of head coverings and solidifies through this rhetorical question that it is indeed improper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Remember, we're talking about public ministry, and remember, we're talking about something that was unique to that day. We've already spent a few weeks unpacking why this is so, but he takes a different angle to bring his argument home. And that angle is that of the natural covering, in other words, hair. The hair that grows out of her head. The question, in verse 14, places nature above fashion or style. The word nature refers to instinct or one's innate sense of what is normal and right. He is now appealing to their simple consciousness. You get it, he says. He says that one knows naturally. You would know this that long hair on a man is a dishonor to him. And he mentions this not as a lesson in and of itself, but as a reinforcement of what he has previously taught about women and head coverings. In other words, he goes to uh, the issue of men with long hair, and as we'll see, just to further support his teaching on women's head coverings. So this, like head coverings, was also a cultural issue. It was a shame or dishonorable for men to have long hair in that time period and in that place. It was then. It was cultural. I got you. Our society, at least in America, that's not the case anymore. So, at that time, long hair was associated with homosexuals. In the ancient Corinthians culture, a man growing his hair long would convey sexual ambiguity and even possible moral perversion. And we get this, right? Traditionally, men have short hair, women have long hair, and so you could see where there weren't at a time where there weren't different hairstyles that were accepted in the culture, where we didn't go through the perhaps uh, the 80s, Uh, rock band phase where that became in vogue for men or whatever it is. Not sure how it started around here. But you could see where it was just a clear distinct thing that people, as we saw even with head coverings and short hair, would change their hairstyles to make a point, to try to say something about themselves, to maybe even start some sort of social revolution. And we see again the issue of blurred distinctions between men and women that Paul has been addressing. And with that understanding, you can see how this would be a natural and reasonable thought when someone back then saw a man with long hair. It would be a clear and visible sign that indicates a lack of dignity. The opposite would be true of women, as uh, Paul mentions in verse 15. While it is a shame for men to have long hair, Long hair is a glory for women. And we'll see why. It's kind of a neat way that he connects this to head coverings. But first, the word glory is that which brings her praise or honor. And to be clear, it's not the hair itself that brings her glory. Like today, maybe a a model or hair model. Ooh, nice hair. You do hot oil treatment or whatever. I don't know. You know... I think I've mentioned this before. Step out of the pulpit for a second. After living in a developing country for several years, I would come home, and we would stock up on supplies because a lot of the stuff that we wanted, stuff that we were used to as Americans, uh, they didn't sell there. And so we would, you know, go to Target. And I remember, um, I needed shampoo. I just wanted shampoo. So foolish me, having been out of the country for a while, thought I could go into the shampoo aisle of Target, no less, and just see a bottle that says shampoo. I literally started getting lightheaded and had to leave the aisle. Shampoo for women, shampoo for curly hair, shampoo for colored hair. My hair is black. Is that colored? I had no idea. What in the world? I mean, it was crazy. And I realized, man we're a bit spoiled here in America, aren't we? And I, <laughs> I kid you not, I finally found a shampoo that said shampoo for men. It was like 30 bucks for the bottle or something like that. And it just, you know what, I'll be fine with the, whatever they sell in Albania. So anyways, random thought, there you go. That one's for free. So we talk about this woman and her long hair being a glory for her. So again, it's not the hair itself that is the glory. Rather, it functions as something that highlights and distinguishes her as a female and thus the splendor of being a woman. This makes more sense and ties into the whole passage when we look at the last phrase, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Huh. Now we start getting to Paul's point. Paul is saying that her natural, God-given covering hair accentuates the honor of the additional head covering. See, he's not countering his previous statement and saying, well, since a woman naturally grows long hair, she doesn't need a head covering. Rather, He's saying that since it is an honor for a woman to have her hair long as a covering that God has naturally given her, then any custom that accentuates that honor should be all the more prized and valuable. So ladies, wear your head covering. Which also explains his statement in verses 5 and 6 that said if a woman chooses to remove her temporary head covering, then she should also remove her permanent covering her hair as well. Remember, cut it short or shave her head. Now, the issue of hair and the differences in accepted styles for men and women highlight much of what Paul has already taught in our study. For example, the fact that what is glory for one is dishonor for another shows the clear differences in God's design and plan for men and women. And this brings us to our third and final harmonizing truth about men and women. We've seen that men and women need each other, the mutual dependence. We've seen the differences in what hair lengths signify, especially for women, in manifest dignity. And thirdly and finally, modeled disposition. Modeled disposition. Look at verse 16. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches. Of God. This finishes off the section and then he goes into his teaching on the Lord's Supper, which next week, as we'll see just from his terminology, is clearly a bigger issue for him and is a sin that they are already practicing. Whereas with head coverings, we're not even sure if any of the Christian women are going without head coverings. It's just a question that they have posed to him. So Paul finishes off this section of his letter by addressing those who have a problem with this whole issue of head coverings and probably more likely a problem with female submission. But it could probably run the gamut. There are probably some women that just it felt uncomfortable to them, and then there's some people on the other end of the spectrum that don't like the idea of submission at all. Now remember, a good portion of this letter that we've seen already is him addressing These various issues. So, this is no surprise that he addresses a potential specific individual or individuals and how they may react to his teaching here. Basically, what he's saying in verse 16 is he says, After everything I've said, in the end, there's nothing else I can say. I'm not going to argue, I'm not going to belabor the point. I think I've been very clear. If they don't accept what he said on this topic, then so be it. He said what he said. He's given the principles. He's gone all the way back to Genesis and creation. There's nothing more he can say. In other words, this is the way things are. And when he says at the end of verse 16, nor have the churches of God have any other practice, he says that's the way all the other churches do it. Now, I want to make uh, something clear here based on that phrase. On the surface, what Paul does here is not something we should quickly adapt today. In other words, we can't just say, well, there's a lot of churches who do it, so we should do it too. That's not what Paul's doing here. Because what he's talking about here is doctrine before it was doctrine. You see what I mean? He's laying down scriptural truths before there was the New Testament. He's not just saying, oh, yeah, they all have a coffee bar, so let's have a coffee bar, okay? He is talking about a biblical principle that's a biblical principle for us now, clearly a biblical principle in the Old Testament, but for the New Covenant church, it is now biblical principle because he's written it. So when he says this is the way things are, all the other churches do it, He's saying because they submit to the apostolic teaching as a representation of God and His Word. So this goes beyond just ways of doing ministry, but a universal principle and accepted practice of all believers at the level of doctrine. With that in mind, we can learn from what Paul does here. He says, I've given you the Scriptures, essentially, and that's it. Now, obviously, the scenario is different. He's writing a letter. He's not in person. He can't do a Q&A. He can't have people over. He can't talk to them and discuss it. I mean, he can talk to people who came back and said, this is how some people who were inclined to be contentious responded and say, well, you know, this is how we should minister to people like that. But he doesn't have the ability to get on the phone or even an email and talk to them in an almost instantaneous way. So he's got to lay it out, and that is it. But his conscience is clear that he has written everything he wants to write as if you were writing a letter or even an email and saying this is the last of it. The case is closed. I'm going to tell them they don't need to respond. End of argument. And so you're going to be as concise and thorough as possible with the understanding that they may read that and go, yeah, right. And what's Paul's, Paul's response to the Pff, yeah, right? Well, first of all, he clarifies that you're being contentious, right? Do you, you know what contentious means? Those who love strife, quarrelsome, argumentative. These are people who force an argument to be the winner rather than going out and seeking the truth. We all know people like this. We've all done it. You find yourself in an argument and you're like, "Uh." you realize, I can't believe I'm still arguing because I just want to be right and I don't even know if what I'm saying is true. Nor do I care to stop and find out the truth. I just want to be right. And if I can't be right, bash, 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 bash. And there are people in the church that Paul supposes will have a problem with this, and they're going to be contentious. They're going to want to argue. They're going to want to fight. Sometimes I think about these poor people, whether it's the pastor or whoever it is, and the, you know, the owner of the house that the house church meets in. These poor people who have to read these letters. You know, they're just the messenger. They're not even the messenger. Right? The messenger gave them the letter. Now they're reading the letter. And then the contentious, who are they going to attack? The poor guy reading the letter. But what does Paul do? Again, with an understanding that the scenario is different, rather than arguing, rather than getting mad, rather than belittling, he tells them this is the way things are and that's that. He's very gracious He's very loving. He lays out the truth. He, he, I mean, this very letter is, uh, uh, to the degree that a hand-delivered letter back then without modern roads or modern vehicles could be, he's going back and forth with the Corinthians. Two letters. There's another letter we believe exists that we don't have. He's trying to help them. They're treating him very poorly. And he's going back and forth graciously, patiently, he doesn't just throw a truth grenade and say, that's it, repent or die, right? That's it. So don't get that from what he's saying here. He's just saying, there's, there's nothing else I can say. Let's move on. You have a lot of questions. Let me answer them. In the same way we need to give people the truth, we need to come alongside them as the men's and women's groups are learning in Tripp's book to come alongside them in it for the long haul, as Paul was. Again, a lot of travel, a lot of churches, a lot of disciples. But he was with them for the long haul, patient, gracious, coming alongside. Mm, Yeah, I can see where you get that, but this is what the Bible says. Not just one and done, bash, 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 I'm done, conscious is clear, said what I had to say, it's up to them and God. It is up to them and God. God will change their hearts, hopefully. It is something we need to rely on the truth for. But just as a little girl, the teenage girl who sprained her ankle, it's her race. It's her muscles. It's her body that's going to carry her. But you're not going to stop that dad from running down from the stands, pushing off the security guards and helping her hobble past the finish line. To the best of his ability, that is what Paul is doing. The best of our ability, that is what we need to do. And Whether they end up running full sprint on their own at the end or we have to carry them over, we need to be there. But also, as Paul does, we need to stick to the truth. We need to trust God to change hearts, not our eloquence, not our opinions, not our bashing of social movements, not even our studying the the roots of these social movements and seeing how they're wicked and evil, but with God's truth, with God's truth. And this is the model disposition. This is what everyone is doing. Paul's not saying this to embarrass them. Paul is saying, "This is truth. This is standard. This is status quo. Women in public, and especially in the church, need to wear their head coverings or whatever that local localized custom is for that particular early age. Church, house church, to represent God's glory through the women representing the man's glory through biblical submission, and of course, read between the lines the man's biblical leadership. A quick word about that. One of the greatest challenges for a woman to submit in her marriage, not always, But generally, the biggest challenge and the most common challenge is because the husband is not leading. It's because the husband is not leading. The team might still eke out a few wins based on their talent, but if the coach is not coaching, they're doomed. They're doomed. I mean, you see our superstar basketball players traded, leaving, wanting wanting a ring, so they go to this team. Kind of bombed. But then when the coach is fired, finally, finally, now let's win some championships, right? Men, if you're not leading, women, you still need to follow. You still need to submit. But men, you're just making it harder. And women, some of your men are trying to lead and you're making it harder by not submitting. And you say, well, I'm not going to submit until he leads properly. Your marriage, then, I would say, is wrapped up somehow in yourself and possibly your husband rather than God. I get it. It can be hard. It can be difficult. It's challenging. Some of you are married to unbelievers. And so even when they do follow this pattern, you understand it's out of something other than what you want it to be out of, which is a desire to worship and honor God. But when we take our eyes off of the Scriptures and put our eyes onto the potential for a happy marriage, or even just trying to make a point in society maybe, you know, know, if, uh, if you're the kind of person who really seems more committed to your roles and biblical thinking because you just got in an argument with someone else and you want to prove a point, then your thinking is way, way, way wrong as well. Okay? That's not going to last. That doesn't honor God. But back to what I was saying. When you just focus on the marriage, a happy marriage, social things, your own happiness, want to end the arguments, whatever it is, and you don't look at the Scripture, the temptation then is, okay, honey, tell me, define for me what leadership looks like to you. What will make you happy? Thank you, dear. Can you tell me what you think submission looks like so that the kids aren't so scared when we're arguing? And when you don't put Scripture in there, you're going to define it in a way that will make you happy, not joyful, will bring peace peace to the home, but will inevitably self-destruct. It would work if you weren't a Christian. But as a Christian, you're going against your very calling your salvation, your nature, which is to do things God's way in a redeemed and appropriate God-honoring way. Because, for example, then it becomes, I need you to lead me by stop telling me where I'm sinning and telling me to change because that makes me upset and it makes me feel like uh, you're talking down to me And it makes me feel like you're criticizing me. And it makes me feel like you're not loving me. Those are all feelings. What it really is doing is it's throwing the Bible out of your leadership. Biblical submission is not comfortable for the leader. Biblical leadership is not always comfortable for the one submitting. Because it involves confronting sin. It involves reshaping thinking. It involves nudging back into the proper lane, and sometimes it involves a hard check back into the proper lane. You know why? Because we need each other. We need each other. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this study, this clarity on the role of women, and subsequently the role of men. Father, help us to understand that we are not independent of each other, and we're definitely not independent of you. We need you. Father, I pray for those marriages that are hurting because of this very issue. May they seek your word, may they seek you, may they reconcile with one another. May they shift things, even if it means being uncomfortable. May your glory be at the forefront of their minds. I pray, Father, for the marriages that are doing well, that they would excel still more. I pray that you would cultivate In the singles who desire to be married, the right attitude and thinking, the biblical theology of men and women in this now and today. And for the singles who do not desire to be married, may you cultivate this right understanding of how the family works and your plan for society and the church. Use us in this way for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen